One of my uh, favorite movies is The uh, Princess Bride. And uh, one, of the, one of the major plot lines is uh, it involves the character, Anigo Montoya, a Spanish swordsman, if you're not familiar. And he is on a personal mission to avenge the death of his beloved father. His father was a sword maker, and when Anigo was a small boy, his father was ruthlessly murdered by a man with six fingers on his right hand in what was essentially a business deal gone bad. When the boy, Anigo, rose up to uh, really avenge his father in the moment, uh, the killer laughed at him, put scars on his face to warn him that his bravery would do him nothing but get him killed. Well, Inigo was scarred for life in more ways than one, and he vowed that as he grew older, he would seek revenge and dedicated his life to studying fencing in order to one day bring justice to his father's killer. Inigo's search for the six-fingered man became a lifelong quest, and at some point he decided that when he found him, he would first address him with these now famous words that he had clearly memorized. Hello. My name is Nigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. We hear this line repeated by Nigo over and over, especially in the battle that ensues when he successfully finds and engages his father's killer. As the fight rages on, Nigo repeats his crisp, crisply prepared formal greeting with all the gusto he can muster until finally his thirst for revenge is quenched and the battle is over. And the six-fingered man is no more. Well, as the movie comes to a close, Inigo seems relieved but also perplexed. He tells his friend Wesley, it's very strange. I've been in the revenge business so long. Now that it's over, I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. While the movie is uh, merely a movie and uh, aims uh, to be uh, funny. Isn't it true that that's how a lot of people live their lives? How many of us in this very room have exhausted ourselves holding grudges and seeking revenge either for real or even only perceived injustices that have been committed against us? Yeah, rhetorical question. How many people in the world have spent, even wasted their lives seeking revenge? I mean, even as this is not like an issue of unbelievers, professing Christians can easily get swept away with a thirst for revenge. Even though God clearly states in Deuteronomy 32, 35, Romans 12, 19, and Hebrews 10, 30, that vengeance is mine, I will repay. And even though this is the case, we so easily forget this truth and we run ourselves ragged seeking our own revenge, our own sense of justice. Consider the, the things in the headlines, in the news, all of the revenge-seeking going on for 
real or perceived injustices that are happening in, you know, inciting riots in towns all over the country. When someone seeks this personal revenge, if they're going to try to justify it, this is probably a Christian, but not necessarily, because this is a, a pretty common phrase. What is the, the scriptural, the biblical phrase that you hear from folks that are trying to justify their revenge-seeking? What's that? An eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. Well, this is found in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19, and we'll look, uh, and uh, Jesus picks it up in Matthew 5. And so we'll look at uh, those individually in a moment, but I want to make a quick comment, um, or really a quote, uh, from a commentator on people's conception, their perception of this idea of an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. A uh, guy says this. Many people feel that it serves as a license for someone to do equal harm to someone else who has harmed them. For example, if you hit my arm, I'll hit your arm. If you dent my car, I will break your windshield. Even if the initial harm done was by accident, some individuals feel perfectly justified in settling the score, so to speak. And they may appeal to this verse. Does that, does that ring true? The sense that you feel like people have, maybe even you've, you've had in the past, that eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, you wrong me, I'm wronging you back. Now we're square. Well, as always, if we're going to understand the verse, we have to consider it in its context. And so let's turn to Exodus 21, and we'll look at its first, first occurrence. Uh, before we look at it, though, what is the, what's the setting? Exodus 21, what's the, the historical setting? What's the context of what's going on in this chapter? Anybody know? God's handing out laws left and right, right? The Israelites have been uh, delivered after some 400 years in slavery to the Egyptians. God, through his servant Moses, has delivered them, freed them, uh, and is establishing them as a nation, as a people, as his people. And uh, Exodus, 21, Exodus 20 is where we find the, uh, the Ten Words or the, the Ten Commandments, uh, apt summary of God's moral law, and then uh, really from there, uh, before we get into the tabernacle and some things like that, uh, God is giving some laws that help further uh, explain, um, shed light on His Ten Words. And within the pages of these laws, God defines different crimes and commands particular punishments. Yet knowing the, the sinful nature of human beings, 
God also sought to protect individuals from excessive punishment when justice was to be delivered. For example, it would be an abuse of justice, like a modern-day example, it would be an abuse of justice if someone uh, was given 20 years in prison for driving 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. That's not justice. Because, first of all, we'd probably all be in prison. And second, the punishment doesn't what? Fit, fit the crime. The punishment does not fit the crime. And so, therefore, in order to avoid this kind of injustice, God makes it clear that the punishment could never exceed the damage done. And thus the phrase, an eye for an eye. And so, uh, looking then in Exodus 21... Would somebody read verses 22 through 25? Anybody? Strive together and get a pregnant woman so that the children, her children come out, but there is no harm. One who get her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him. He shall, he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall. Right, thanks. And so the, the context of this phrase, uh, eye for an eye, etc., uh, it's found in this passage, is it's in a section of laws concerning violence. Here it concerns what to do if there are two men fighting and in the process a pregnant woman is injured. And then so whatever, whatever injury is done to the, the woman or the child... The man must repay an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And as a side note, what does this, what real kind of immediate application can we think of for our own day concerning a, a text like this? Yeah, Becky. Yeah, Absolutely that the, the child within the womb is afforded uh, the rights of personhood, right? That's, I think, a big part of the debate. A lot of people are like, okay, it's a human being, but is it a person? Well, yes. The man who injures the child in, in this fight must repay life for life, tooth for tooth. And so our culture has this, like uh, we talked about a few weeks ago, the issue of uh, homosexuality. Culture has this sort of, it's this revolting obsession and idolatry of one's ability to do with uh, the child inside the womb, whatever one likes. And so we need to... um, we need to stand firm on an issue like that. We don't only have plenty of passages that maybe you could say imply certain things that if we, if we understand this and this A plus B equals C and we have to do some inferring, we have a, a text like this that really just, I think, outright 
should settle the issue of principle. How all things are applied, it may be one thing, but the life of the unborn fetus is equivalent to the life of mother, to men. There's no difference seen here in the text. And so we shouldn't sit idly by while our children are executed and discarded by the millions year after year. Um, and so that, that's just a, a side note uh, from this text, but I wanted to just address that. Uh, so the issue here, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, there's a, uh, both a, a, a limit and a, there's a maximum and a minimum kind of uh, punishment that's expected here. You shouldn't repay less than what he owes, but he shouldn't be required to pay more either. And so uh, this uh, phrase is also used in, ex- uh, I'm sorry, that's Exodus, Leviticus 24. So if you'll flip over there, Leviticus 24, and if someone reads, would read verses 17 through 23. Leviticus 24, 17 through 23. Okay, good. So, again, this passage, uh, similar uh, to the one in Exodus, the Lord tells Moses that uh, whatever injury man commits against his neighbor shall be done or given to him. And it's important to remember, I just, uh, as we said earlier, that uh, the stress here is on the justness of the retribution. The, the point in these texts is that justice is served. And so then the expectation is that whatever crime a man commits against another, justice is that that which, is, that which he commits is done to him, no more and no less. And this was, um, again, to keep people from going, being too lightly punished or uh, being too severely punished. Yeah, mom. Yeah, verse 22, he shall pay as the judge, judges determine. Mm-hmm.
Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and that's something that we'll get to in a minute, the idea of, of how in today, like especially, you know, how are we to consider this idea of justice and retribution and um, punishment for crimes and, and things like that. But that's a, a great observation that, uh, that even then it wasn't, it wasn't uh, the wronged person's duty to go and, okay, well, you did this, so now I'm going to, you know, you hit my arm, so now I'm going to hit your arm, that there were others involved, there were people who had been appointed to various positions of leadership to, to carry out these sentences. Uh, yeah, I think that's, is that what you're getting at? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah we'll talk about that. Anyway, but I want to look at one last, yeah, Tris. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it seems, I mean, the first one, obviously, uh, that seems to clearly have been, uh, one, an accident, maybe a negligence, rather than the two men are fighting. They're not, they're not like, all right, well, let's move it over there so that we can, you know, hurt this lady and her baby. Um, but they're still responsible for uh, for the damage that they cause because of their foolishness, their sinfulness, and neglect of their duty to protect life. But uh, here, um, I, I'm not sure about whether, uh, as far as anything in... Uh, I, the sense that I get is that there, it does seem to carry a more uh, malicious intent. Certainly, the one we're about to look at in Deuteronomy 21 does. Um, and that it's actually the one in Deuteronomy... 19, um, 21. Uh, we can go ahead and flip there. It has a, it's actually got a, a quite distinct flavor of it, uh, flavor from the other two. And so, Deuteronomy 19, um, uh, somebody read 15 through 21. Deuteronomy. And so, what is, what's the, the biggest difference between this passage and the other two? This one is just a witness, even falsely accusing someone. Yeah, it's, there's this uh, issue of um, repaying the intent uh, 
of uh, his false accusations? What was what harm was he intending on this on his neighbor, rather than uh, even the the harm that was actually done in the other two? And so the phrase "eye for an eye" here occurs um, in the context of how to handle malicious witnesses. Uh, in Scripture, one witness wasn't sufficient to make uh, uh, an accusation to condemn somebody. They needed at least two or three witnesses to establish an accusation. And so if a malicious witness arises to accuse his brother of something, uh, once it was determined that he had falsely uh, accused him, then whatever harm he was intending on his brother should be done to him. And so uh, there's a very, that very striking statement, you shall purge the evil from your midst, uh, and the rest uh, shall hear and fear and shall uh, never again commit any, any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, tooth for, uh, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Again, there's this constant stress upon justice being met, justice being served. And so all the while, what we have to be asking ourselves as we consider issues of uh, insult and uh, retaliation, revenge, and those sorts of things is what is justice? Who determines what justice is? Who has a right to carry out justice? Um, Those are the kinds of things that we need to be asking. Um, And so before we pick up in Matthew 5, anybody have a question about what we've said so far? Comment? Okay. Well, then I think uh, that's a good uh, segue into what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Because not only is uh, this idea, this phrase, these texts, not only are they misunderstood today and misused today, um, they were uh, misunderstood and misused in Jesus' day. And so, uh, Matthew 5, verses 38 through 42. Somebody read that. Thank you. So what then, in essence, is Jesus encouraging, exhorting, commanding his followers to do as it concerns their right when they are wronged? Surrender it. He exhorts his uh, his people to give up, essentially, their right to exact justice and vengeance when wronged. Uh, another way we could say it, we should resist the urge to fight back. To retaliate. 
So in other words, we leave the justice to the courts. And in the context of personal relationships, we need to be willing to forgive and turn the other cheek. And, and so, uh, something uh, to mention, what about the idea of, like, self-defense, though? Does Jesus' command to turn the other cheek, does that require, then, that we just, we let the guy beat us up in the back alley or whatever? Some guy breaks into your house, you're like... There's a difference between protecting yourself, protecting those who are under your care and authority, your wife, your children, and then and there's a difference in that and seeking personal hate-filled vengeance and retaliation. Right? Because, uh, like we've said before, the command not to murder, for instance, carries with it the reverse, or maybe not the reverse, but the implied opposite of you have to protect life. And so if there's a guy, if your neighbor's getting beat to death, you have an obligation to protect his life as much as you are able, right? And so Jesus' words here are not a call to this kind of pure passivity where we simply become doormats and our uh, people are free to injure us and harm us um, and we just have to, to let it happen. I, the issue here is the idea of retaliation, of revenge, of trying to settle the score. He's wronged me, he's hurt me, he's offended me, he's injured me, and so now... I'm going to turn around and I want to do the same thing to him. That makes sense. That's good. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. If how you, yeah, governing authorities. Um, there's, uh, yeah. We want to remember that they are, which will get that in a second, address uh, kind of, they are placed there by God, and we are called to submit to them, and, um, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say that if, if they break into my house and are, you know, uh, hurting me or, or my wife or something, and we're not done anything, I mean, that, I don't know, how about, I'll, I'll throw that out to you guys. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who? So, who who makes that determination? Yeah, I mean, because you know, if he's follow, I, I, that's probably uh, a, 
a helpful kind of distinction there is that as when laws are being followed, then we're called to submit to them. But if my life is in danger because even a police officer is breaking the law, I would think I'd, I have a right to protect myself and my own. Yeah, Nick. So what's, what's the, the proper response then to, to insult? If we consider um, what Jesus is saying here, uh, that even in the face of being wronged, a person, uh, pers- we need to respond with grace and benevolent generosity even, and that even if he takes your tunic, uh, you give him your cloak as well kind of thing. And so if we are insulted, if we are injured, if we are harmed, 
should our desire, should our aim, should our intention be to injure, insult, and to harm back? No. I think, too, when people misquote, misuse this verse, while on the face of it, it seems that what they're after is justice. He hurt me this way, and so I want him hurt in equal way. But the way it ends up playing out, what seems to really carry the day is that if you've injured me, I'm generally not going to be content if you are dealt a similar injury, injury in like manner. We want people to suffer more than they injured us. It's, uh, you know, the kind of, uh, it's just a little extra added to, you know, to that's what we think is right and the wrong. And then if they think that, then it just escalates back and forth. Um, we see that in, you know, pranks. It's pranks. I'm not commenting on what I think about pranks, but, you know, you, so you prank, you go back, and you back, and that's fun or whatever. But in these personal offenses and retaliations where we're actually angry at one another, if we carry that same kind of thing, where does it end? We, we want to add a little extra for good measure. And so, Scripture, the appropriate context and application of this these passages in both the Old and New Testaments keeps us from doing that. At the minimum, it keeps us from seeking more pain and suffering on another than was committed against us. Really, though, it does more than that. In reality, Jesus seeks to have his people leave retribution to someone else and forsake themselves, forsake it themselves altogether. Such is the manner of those who have been redeemed by grace. Jesus loved us died for us while we were still sinners. Shall we not seek to apply a same, similar kind of love and grace to others? And then so three, three quick things uh, about how we might uh, apply this and we'll wrap it up. When we're wronged, what do we do? First, we should never seek personal revenge. I think the clearest meaning uh, of Jesus' words in Matthew 5, and if it's not clear enough, the Apostle Paul says uh, a very similar thing in Romans 12. He writes, uh, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so, if your enemy, he says to, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so, we should never avenge ourselves uh, for two basic reasons. First, we're to leave the retribution in the hands of the civil authorities. In Romans 13, we don't have time, but uh, Paul talks about submitting to the authorities, the governing authorities that are placed over you. They are there, uh, instituted by God, and they are there to perform justice. They are to see that the good is rewarded and evil is punished. And so that sounds really nice and great and easy, but what if you have a corrupt 
justice system? What if you have corrupt governing authorities? What do we do if we have wicked people leading us who are responsible for punishing the evildoer, rewarding the, the one who does well? Well, we can't get into all the ins and outs of our duties as citizens of this world, but suffice it to say, Paul didn't write his words in Romans 13 to, uh, he didn't write them under a perfect judicial system. He didn't tell his readers to submit to, thor- to submit to the authorities only if they are perfect. In fact, he wrote these words under a fairly oppressive governmental system that quick- quickly grew in its opposition to the Christian, me- Christian message. Paul was ultimately killed under this governing system. And so it seems very unlikely that we're only obligated to submit to the governing authorities if they're Christians. Rather, uh, so how do we respond to our governing authorities then? We submit as long as they're not ordering us to sin. Get involved if there's ways to influence your society and your justice system for the better. And thirdly, wait and pray. And we'll close with this. In Romans 12, Paul says, Do not avenge yourselves, for vengeance is God's. He says, Leave it to the wrath of God. We don't need to seek revenge because in the end, when all is said and done, God will repay. We can suffer all kinds of wrong because God is sovereign and he will not let let one wicked deed go unpunished. Every sin will either have been punished in Christ on the cross of Calvary or it will be punished in the person of the sinner for all of eternity. You, Christian, right now can endure suffering and injustice because in the end, all the wrongs will be made right. The pain will be undone. When all is said and done, when the final trumpet blows, every ounce of injustice that you've experienced will be dealt with. And so I'll close with two very quick, just one. One very brief quote from C.S. Lewis uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He writes these words. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And so, in the end, there's lots to work through today. There's lots to work through while we're alive. But we can trust, commit ourselves to God, our faithful God, who will carry us to himself, who is just, who never errs. We don't have to avenge avenge ourselves. We don't have to take revenge out. We can leave it to the authorities God has placed in our lives, and even when they fail us, we can leave it to God. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thank you for uh, its truth. And Lord, I pray that through uh, feeble messenger that uh, your truth would would ring out. Teach us, God, uh, this day. Be with us this morning as we gather together to hear your word preached, to sing songs together, to hear your word read, uh, to pray. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.